Welcome to the One Broken Cog Podcast. Join John and Brian as they share small adjustments that lead to major impacts. One Broken Cog Podcast. Brian Olson back with you. And my guest today is none other than Jeff Morrill. Now, Jeff co-founded Planet Subaru, your undealership in 1998, and built it into one of the most successful privately held car dealerships in the United States. Now, he later started other businesses in automotive retail, real estate, telecommunications, and insurance that generate over $100 million in annual revenue. Now, his achievements in building profitable and ethical companies have been featured in a variety of national media, including USA Today, Entrepreneur Magazine, Automotive News, The Boston Globe, and others. Jeff is the author of ProfitWise, How to Make More Money in Business by Doing the Right Thing, and he's donating all his royalties to charity. Now, Jeff is also a strict vegetarian, even though people tell him it's a big mistake to eat that way. However, he does like his puns well done. Jeff lives with his wife, Julie, outside Charlottesville, Virginia, on a mountain he refers to as the moral high ground. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for that kind introduction. Anytime. And, you know, I have to give you some credit. I mean, listen, being a vegetarian has to take extreme dedication. I mean, how hard is it for you when your neighbors are barbecuing? I mean, I wouldn't be able to make it. A lot of people, you know, have their own reasons for becoming vegetarians. So some people do it because they never liked meat, which is interesting. In in my wife's case, that's what was the motivator for her. Other people do it for environmental reasons, primarily, or some people come at it from health reasons. And of course, you can have a whole whole matrix of reasons for, for wanting to do it. But the primary one for me was just the, the compassion or ethical dimension to it that I just, uh, I just love animals so much. I love pets. And to me, the difference between a dog and a pig, is just so close that, that I just, uh, in my mid thirties, I, I just couldn't do it anymore. So when I hear somebody, excuse me, when I smell a barbecue, it's still very tempting. And I just remind myself that, that I'm doing it to, to, to be, harmonious with my values as a person. And, and I don't judge other people for, for the way they eat. It's just, it's the decision that I had to make for me. Well, they're dead already, right? What's, what's the harm in eating one? Yeah, I think there's, you know, my, uh, my partner, Dale, and um, he's, a, he's an avid fisherman. And he does, like, he has a big boat that he goes out and does uh, long line fishing. And he likes tuna in particular. Nice. And there's something very sustainable about that way of pulling fish from the water and you know, that it's the, the mechanization and the, the industrial application of technology to these things that really causes the problem. So, you know, if I were a hunter, you know, and pulling down my own deer, I, I think I'd think about that differently than, than an animal being raised in a, in a factory farm, you know, never seeing the light of day, never getting outside of a, a tiny little cage. Right. There you go. No, it's okay. I understand completely. Now, Jeff, you got your start in the car business, right? How did you get your start? How did you get your foot in the door in the car business? Be careful that first job you take out of college because you can't find a job in the field that you studied. So I was interested (laughs) in public service, which is how I ended up interning for a politician in Virginia. I grew up in Blacksburg, Virginia, and Richmond is the state capital. So I spent spent a semester of college driving the lieutenant governor of Virginia named Don Beyer and uh, drove him around and became very friendly with him and, and really got to know each other well. When I graduated, his office had two or three staff people, longtime people. They didn't need anybody. That's really what I wanted to do. But he, he happened to own a Volvo dealership and he had a service department in need of a service writer. And 
I always loved cars and I needed a job. So that was the, the perfect match for me. What kept me going is, is just that I was learning so much and, and enjoying that process. It was like an MBA that they were paying me for. Yeah. And, and he was very generous in terms of promoting me and giving me opportunities to participate in different aspects of the business, different departments. So I didn't get just stuck doing one thing. So I, I recommend young people, and I don't know how many of those there are in your audience, but, but the best thing to do, I think, when you're young is to, to make sure you're doing something that you enjoy. And, and then the skills will just come easily. You'll wake up one day and have the ability to, to do something that, that has value to society, which is what happened to me. After a few years of that, I was able to, with my brother, open a dealership ourselves, and we moved to Massachusetts to do that, to buy a bankrupt Subaru dealership. And that's how we got started. Nice. What was your first job in the, in the automotive industry? So I was the, the guy in the service department when a customer walks in the door and says, my brakes are squeaking. I ah. was the person that said, okay, well, let me, let me learn more about that. Gather all the relevant information, check for recalls, type up the paperwork. I couldn't fix cars. I, I interacted with the technicians who would actually do the work. And, and of course, over time, I became quite mechanically competent, never nearly so much as the, the people were actually doing it, but you can't be around that all day and not learn a lot, particularly about that particular product line. Yeah, no, absolutely. For some reason, I hate going to a car dealership. I dread it. You know, when, when I'm buying a car, I just hate the process of it. It's just a weird environment to me. I, and I know a lot of people feel the same. Why do you think the automotive industry is looked at in such a negative light? Well, we, I don't know if I'm the best person to answer that because I agree with you so much about that experience that we, we opened the business with a commitment to providing experience that was totally the opposite of that typical dealership, which is why we, we go with the undealership slogan and also the undealership way of doing business. It's not just words or a marketing approach for us. It's actually an operating values philosophy. I think what happens is there's a misunderstanding among people operating car, car businesses with respect to car buyers, that if they don't sell that person a car today, then that person will leave and not come back. I think this is the heart of it. And, and that fear on the part of dealership owners and managers is what drives all the shenanigans. And the reason why is because we just accept at Planet Subaru, and we also have another, another uh, Jeep dealership, Planet Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram in a different town. We just accept that some people won't make a decision that day. And that's fine. We don't freak out about that because we know that if they had a good experience, we give them more and better quality information, then yeah, we're gonna lose some of them because they just decide that they don't wanna buy a car or they prefer a different brand or maybe they really can, they can go save a hundred bucks somewhere else, whatever. But if they had a good enough experience, they'll come back. So we don't insist on people buying that day. And the dealerships that do insist on people buying that day, that's what creates all the insanity on the showroom floor. The thing where you give them the, your keys to, to trade your car because you get them to appraise it and they won't give your keys back. I mean, you hear stories like that right. until you, you know, or, or all the other techniques they use, you know, this deal is good only today, or they won't let you out the door comfortably. It's let me introduce you to a manager who's going to pressure you and try a whole new slew of tactics that I didn't try as the salesperson. And then if that manager can't do it, they, 
<laughs> they bring in yet another manager and just wear people out. It, it actually works surprisingly often, which is frustrating to us in a business where we're trying to provide the alternative is, is when we hear customers buy cars elsewhere and describe the experience to us later. And we just shake our heads like, why didn't you just walk out and come back? And there are a million reasons we hear. Maybe the most common one is, well, I've been shopping for a car all day. You guys were the nicest, but we just couldn't invest any more time or effort in this. And we were there and we were tired and we were hungry. So we just signed up. Wow. So you're beating them into submission, huh? <laughs> it works often enough that, that it's um, a viable strategy for, for many dealerships. We're just not willing to do it. I think it's wrong ethically. Some of the practices are actually like literally illegal. So we're not going to participate in that stuff. But but obviously, if it works enough that the, the business are able to sustain themselves and do well enough to, to continue operating. No, absolutely. Now, do you think the industry itself attracts you know shadier people or does the industry bring out the worst in people? I think the latter. And, and the reason why is because we've been very successful attracting people to our company who have no interest in doing business that way. But we do it with a, a technique I describe in the book, which is we intentionally look for people who do not have prior automotive or even necessarily sales experience. We want to train people our own way so we're not importing any of those bad habits. I don't think that a person going to work in a car dealership or, or in an envelope business or, or anything else is, it could could be demonstrably proven to be any more or less ethical than the average member of the population. I think I think the business is rotten in many places, and that has a tendency to uh, to infect people. No, definitely. So, is it tough for you to attract talent and recruit talent, given the fact that you are in an industry that's looked at with you know such vitriol and the fact that people would just make assumptions about it before ever applying? Has that been difficult for you? There's two sides of the same coin when we're recruiting. One of them is that we find people that are really interested in coming to work for us because they're interested in the opportunities in automotive retail. It's hard work, but the career path is quite advantageous in terms of the income potential and the, the longevity if you find a good company to stay for, I mean, if you find a good dealership, they're actually really good jobs. So, so we do attract those people who want to be in our industry, but just don't want to deal with the shenanigans somewhere else. The problem is we've lost a lot of applicants who make it all the way through our process and we offer them the position and they're like, you know what? I just, I just think there's too much stigma associated with this career path. And I don't want to meet people at cocktail parties and tell them that I'm in automotive sales. So there, you know, it, it, it's definitely a relevant factor for us, but it's not always negative. That's good to hear. You know, how do you think, I know you're an expert at really, you know, the recruiting and in formulating ads to attract better applicants. How do you think businesses can improve the process to, to attract better quality candidates to their business? I think it's important that companies start way upstream and figure out first, and I'm not talking about a ton of effort here, but they invest some time figuring out who they are as a company and why they serve customers better than their competitors. 
And if you can understand that competitive advantage that you have and, and what distinguishes you from a value standpoint or an operational excellence standpoint or whatever it is, then that, that gives you some insight into the kind of person you're looking for. And once you understand that, that person, then you can focus the language of your recruiting ad on that kind of person. Like if you're one of those companies that's just really hard charging and aggressive in a sales context, for instance, you might want to use the word sales ninja because that's going to suggest to applicants there, this is going to be a you know a tough, tough environment you're coming into. There's going to be a lot of income potential, but but you got to be prepared. We don't want to use a word like that, sales ninja, for for our our recruiting ads because we don't want people to think that we're anything like that because we're not. So in our recruiting ads, and, and we have them, you can visit planetsubaru.com and see the, the ones for the positions we're open now. And we have uh, on, on my website, jeffmoral.com, I have a lot of resources that, that complement the book that show the kind of ads that we write. We actually want to communicate the values of the company and the characteristics of the person we're looking for in an appealing way. We You'll notice in our ads, we don't write, you know, we want all this experience and, and they're not like um, wish lists. It, it's a proper advertisement. We, we want to get people excited about the opportunity. And I think a lot of companies miss that, you know, because the HR department's writing the ad right. and it's, it's just the most boring, unappealing, strongest, uh, or I'm, let me back up and say it's the weakest foot forward in terms of, of making the company desirable in the eyes of potential applicants. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. Couldn't have said it better myself. Now, I want to get into you know Planet Subaru and you starting that business in a second here. But before I do, just want to talk to you about the industry. It just seems that the automotive industry hasn't evolved over the years. You know, The same practices that people are averse to seem to never change. Why do you think that is? Why do you think there's such a hesitation to change? Is it because it works or is it because, hey, old habits die hard? There isn't a lot of new blood coming into the car business. Most of the businesses are pretty well established. A lot of them are family companies, so there's not a lot of turnover among them. And I think many, many car dealerships, and I think this is the case for many businesses, because of their hiring practices, don't tend to import a lot of innovation through their new people. And what I mean by that is, if your requirement for an automotive salesperson is that you need five years of experience, well, the only people you're going to get are people who have already been doing it a minimum of five years. And those people don't have a lot of interest or inclination to want to revise the way they interact with customers. So, Jeff, tell me about the decision and the process of starting Planet Subaru. Oh, I mean, we were we were just young and naive. You know, I don't think we we really gave it the thought we should have. I was 26. My brother was 31. We were tired of working for someone else. So we started flipping through the, the back pages of Automotive News, which was uh, print publications. Remember, it was the late 90s. It wasn't online at that time. Yeah. And we just started calling. I, I would pick up the phone every day and, and look for, for someone who was interested in talking to a couple of young guys without a lot of money that wanted to sell their store. We ended up finding the one in Boston in Norwell, Massachusetts. We've since moved it to Hanover, but but at the time it was bankrupt. So it was cheap. And 
we figured, I mean, our thought process on it was, well, the guys who bought it and opened it in April and closed it in August had lost half a million bucks, but they weren't really, really working, working it very hard. And they didn't really know what they were doing. So we figured, you know, we were going to be in there seven days a week and, and we figured we could do a better job than they could. And, and we did, we quickly got it to break even. It took quite a bit longer to actually produce profits worth all the effort we were putting in. But, but that was, that was the thing was just sort of youth and, and, um, you know, young piss and vinegar, I guess I'd, I'd be a lot more cautious <laughs> about doing something like that today. That's no, it's great. Doing. You had a lot of initiative. I'll tell you that. What do you, what are the most common mistakes that dealerships made and what you did to address them with Planet Subaru? How are you different than the rest? Well, I mentioned earlier in terms of just the way they think about customers, you know, it's an adversarial thing. And, and we actually, I'll give you an example. We call our, our salespeople purchase partners and, and the, the language it's might be a little, a little cute by half, but I think that will give you some insight in, in the way we see our role. Like we want to assist people with buying what they want instead of us selling them what we want to sell them. And I think that's that will give you some insight, but but we wanted to make it fun for us too. I don't know how you keep good people if if your salespeople are arguing and your managers are just dealing with so much conflict with people all the time. It just sounds like a horrible way to live. And remember, I was working seven days a week and, and six days a week later for many years. This is this was my life. I didn't want to argue with people all day. I, I just didn't want to do that. I wanted them to be. I wanted to be happy. I wanted them to come back and send their friends and. So that was that was sort of the the global strategy that we had, and and it manifests in different ways. Like one of the things we started doing early on is bringing dogs into the showroom. My brother had a couple of friendly little dogs, and we found that people just responded really really favorably to that. It, it indicated as soon as someone walked in the door, and they'd see these nice dogs coming over to sniff sniff on them and be loved by by people walking in. That that it was uh, we didn't take ourselves too seriously, and that we wanted we wanted the experience to be a positive one. It's amazing. So you differentiated yourself straight away. Now I know that uh, you guys have more female technicians than any other dealership in the country. How did you do that? How did you accomplish that? It goes back to to something important, I think, which might be useful to your listeners about hiring. It's very conventional, typical in a corporate environment, or or even in, in small and medium sized businesses, that people look for experience when they're going to hire, and and experience isn't necessarily bad. But it's not necessarily good either. And one of the risks of, of looking for experience as an automotive technician, to use this example, is that you're only going to be able to attract people who are already doing it. And this is a shocking number. But in the United States, only 1% of technicians in dealerships are women. 1%. They comprise 50%, 51% of the population. But, but this tiny, tiny little percentage of automotive technicians. So if you require multiple years of experience for a technician, when you go to hire, you're only going to find men. So our service manager, Krista, actually describes female technicians as unicorns. They're known to exist, but you never find them. So what she decided to do, and it was her idea, she created the program. It's like, how can we take people who don't already have the skills and help them develop those skills? And this was very necessary to us because the vocational schools in the United States simply aren't turning enough people, turning out enough people to, to provide for the needs of all of the auto dealerships in the country for technicians. So if we can't get people 
from other businesses, we can't you know, bring other people in and we can't get enough out of the schools, then we're gonna have to produce our own. And what she found is when, when we wrote recruiting ads, particularly identified these opportunities and, and spoke to women directly that, that we don't have many women, we'd like to have more. The women we have are very successful and, and we, got, uh, we got some applicants and as we brought those people in, then, then we were able to impart those skills. If you start with someone who's really smart, motivated, hardworking, knows how to show up for work, wants to be, uh, wants to earn more money tomorrow than she does today, then that person's capable of, of learning the, the relatively complicated set of skills necessary to be a technician. Nice. And how have they acclimated to such a male-dominated culture? The first one, I think she was a little nervous coming in because <laughs> she was coming into an environment of like 20 guys. But you have to remember that dealership-wide, in every department, we already had lots of women. Nearly half our, our sales team was women. Our service manager was a woman. We had uh, a woman in parts and um, you know, several women in accounting. So the dealership was, it wasn't half women, but there were already lots of women and lots of people from diverse backgrounds. So it wasn't like she was the only, the only woman in the whole company. But once you have the first one, if you can figure out how to accomplish that, it gets a lot easier from there because the next time you interview an applicant, you can point to that person who's been successful with you and is already on this path. And, and the applicant can meet that person, be introduced to that person, talk with her. So you have a woman talking with another woman about that experience. And, and then it's, you get a flywheel effect at that point. We've been as high as seven. You know, there's a little variation depending on, on, um, on the times, can we keep promoting them to other positions too, which kind of keeps knocking the number down. Um, we recently had, a, which I think is really cool and I'm proud of uh, one of our women technicians came out as trans. So um, Margaret became Mark, which is really cool. And I think that's a, um, a testament to, to our ability as a team just to roll right along with the, the, the many variations that are represented among human beings. Yeah, no, absolutely. So now I know when it comes to reps, especially in the car business, there's a lot of people that set goals. There's a lot of metrics to review. What do you think about that? How do you, you know, really achieve proper goal setting for these reps? And, and what type of metrics would you look at when, when dealing with a, a car sales rep? I'd love to tell you that we had some kind of fancy system for that, but we really don't. And we never have. I mean, we have basic goals for our managers, expectations about where we think the year will go. But the funny thing about the car business is that it's like we're on, uh, and I think a lot of businesses are like this, is that you're, you're on this huge ocean and we're this tiny little boat. And I think the COVID year proved that more than anything. You know, we were doing really well until about March of 2020 and about halfway through the month, the governor of Massachusetts shut the, shut the showroom. He was yeah. like, You're, you guys are out of business and we'll let you know when you can reopen. So I think there's a danger in becoming too obsessed with, with hitting targets. I know um, Warren Buffett's a big fan of, of his companies setting numerical goals and then just finding by hook or crook one way to hit them. That's one of the things that he looks for in a company before he buys it, that ability to do it. But I was always a little reluctant to, to manage in that way through, through a strict numbers-based approach because I, I was reluctant to put that kind of pressure on people. 
And I, I never appreciated when that kind of pressure was put on me. And, and so we try to find people that are internally motivated. And we figure that, yeah, if you want to squeeze people and twist their arms and threaten them with their employment, if they don't hit certain targets, then yeah, that might get a temporary boost out of them. But it's not, it's just not our style. So we, we ask people to do their best. And it's clear if they're showing up and working hard, and, and we can see in a, in a relatively among a relatively small team where we can monitor and, and observe people directly that they're they're doing a good job and they're really invested. That that's our our non non numerical metric. Yeah, no, for sure. Now you had mentioned just based off your last answer, you had one of your reps come in as trans, right? Oh, that was one of our technicians. Oh, technicians. Okay. Now I was, I was wondering because a lot of people they worry about in business if you have a customer facing person like that, it could potentially turn off business. And I don't know what your thoughts are on that or if that's a, you know, a potential concern of yours. Oh, yeah, we, we have uh, that. We've been very fortunate to have a brand in the Subaru dealership where the customers as, as a group, by and large, are pretty progressive in terms of their openness to different kinds of people. And that has given us the confidence to hire people that are really personable, really hardworking and really motivated and not really to care much more. So we have several gay people on our team. In fact, um, my brother, co-founder, John is his name. He's gay. So when we opened in 1998, we actually went looking for those, those people, those overlooked people that were poorly represented in the car business. So we're very accustomed to hiring people that don't fit a traditional mold. And do we come across a customer maybe that would think, you know, some of our salespeople are too weird or too gay for them or whatever? I'm sure it happens, although it doesn't come up. But I think the large majority of people appreciate what we're trying to do. And I think it it gives us a competitive advantage because people know that they were really cool folks when it comes to those, those kinds of things. And, and they want to do business with people that share those values. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I want to talk to you just briefly about the book profit wise. I know that you, you kind of wrote it on accident or there's an accident that led to you writing. We'd love to hear about that. And of course the book itself. Yeah. Yeah. So I was out, uh, well, let me back all the way up and say that all those, all those years I referred to earlier, I was working under showroom lights, fantasizing about someday when there'd be enough cash flow in the company to, to allow me the freedom to get out a lot and do what I've always loved to do more than any other uh, hobby or, or activity, which is um, mountain biking. When I was a kid uh, in the 80s, they used to ride a BMX bike and uh, for people of a certain age, they know what those are. But as, as I got older, you know, the size of the bike increased till I finally stopped growing and that became mountain biking. And I was, I, I used to do it a lot. I, I can't do it anymore. But back in the day, it was my favorite thing to do. So I was out on a rural Albemarle County Road. I, I now live in Charlottesville, Virginia and, and work remotely with the management team running the businesses up in Boston. It was very icy and I, I should have known not to be out there, but I've probably always had an unhealthy risk appetite. So I was like, ah, whatever, who cares? I'll go ride. It's what I want to do today. And I ended up in, in a very violent accident. And after I, I struck the ground, my, my leg was snapped off essentially and, and held on by skin and muscle. The femur 
on my right leg was 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 broken in multiple places and was no longer attached to my hip. So it was the weirdest sensation. Right after it happened, I went to get up and and I couldn't move. And it's uh, never in my life. At the time, I was forty-seven years old. That had never happened to me. I'm involved in a lot of bike wrecks and other other accidents. I I love adventure sports. Uh, I guess I'm a, a little bit of an adrenaline junkie and. And it was at that moment that I realized that that I was probably in some really serious danger because I I wasn't with anybody, and most of the county does not have cell phone reception, if my my phone even worked. So I was able to get my phone out. It was in my pocket, and it did survive the crash. And I had one bar to connect a scratchy nine one one call. And they were able to to find me. They sent sent um, several EMTs out in four wheel drive vehicles, and they scraped me off that icy hill. And that's um, that's how I became incapacitated for many months. But I think a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. And and I knew I'd probably never get another chance in my life like that to have that sustained amount of time where I couldn't go anywhere. You know, I wasn't going to watch TV and and waste that time. That, um, that that huge block of time. I've been wanting to write a book to share the lessons that I learned over all those years in the business, trying to, to create a profitable business that also took care of the stakeholders and not just the stockholders. So I thought I had a lot of insights about that and not only sort of philosophical understanding of that, but also the, the practical techniques about how you implement that and, and make more money by, by taking really good care of the other stakeholders, depending on the business. So, so that's how it got started. And, and that's what produced the book profit wise. Nice. That's great. Well, Jeff, it's been fantastic. Any last words of wisdom or any final thoughts you'd like to share with the audience before we wrap up? Uh, two, the first one's real quick, which is um, I, I love to hear from listeners and readers at jeffmorrell.com. That's J E F F. M-O-R-R-I-L-L.com. And I respond every personal email. So if you want to tell me I'm nuts or you want to agree or or challenge me or whatever, I love to hear. Uh, This slightly longer thing I want to share, and I talk about it in the book, is I I really ask your listeners who are in business to include love in their model. And what I mean by that term, it's actually my father's, who was was a school teacher. And he's now in his 80s, he's still alive. But he always said that in institutions, and that includes businesses or churches or nonprofits or, or whatever institution, should make sure that, that part of its mission is to actually improve the people that serve it and improve the people in the world that it serves. And that's what it means to have love in the model, where you're thinking about the impacts of, of your organization on other people and to try to make sure that you're you're building them up and, and making a better world for, for everybody. So I, I want to leave. I want to leave with that thought on everybody's mind. Wonderful, wonderful. Now, Jeff, just one last question, just a personal question, just to get to know you a little bit better. So, you're going to be retired to your own private island, and you can only bring one book, one movie, and one album. What would they be? All right. So the album is the Eagles' greatest hits, and the quick reason for that is is that's been the soundtrack of my life. It came out. You know, all those songs came out in the '70s. And everywhere I go, standing in line at the grocery store, in a restaurant, I hear them on the radio, and it just um, it just connects me to to it's just the, the connection I have to my whole life. And in the case of a movie, I think it would be The Godfather. I've never seen it, 
and everybody tells me I've been hearing my whole life when people ask me if I've seen it. And I figured that will be my one chance to see it. And the book is Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, which is a, this is not leisurely beach reading. It's actually a really insightful book about the human condition and human biases and all the mistakes that we make when we think. And I, I think that it's one of those books that it can be read and reread and mined continually for all sorts of, of useful insights. And if I were alone on a, on a beach, I think um, the quality of my thinking would be really important to me and I'd like to improve it all the more. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you should definitely watch The Godfather. I don't know what you're waiting for, but it's a great movie. <laughs> yeah, the debate is which one's better, part one or part two. But yeah, watch them both. They're both great. Okay, I'll bring, I'll bring the whole collection with me then to the island. Awesome. Jeff, it's been amazing. How do people get in touch with you, connect with you, and, and learn more? The best way is at jeffmoral.com. And if people want to, and there's lots of tools there too. I mentioned if you can't, you can't afford the $20 for the book and you just want the benefit of, of some of the, the things that we use every day in, the, in our businesses, I put them there. And if you want to check out the, that kind of unusual approach we take to business, that would be planetsuru.com. Fantastic. Jeff, have a wonderful day out there. I'll eat an eggplant tonight in your honor. And uh, keep up the good work, sir. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Thank you for spending time with us today. We encourage you to join the many businesses that we have helped to achieve their objectives, align their departments, and increase their revenue. You can start by reaching out to us at results at onebrokencog.com. Together, we will make small adjustments that will lead to major impacts to your business, your culture, and your bottom line.